greed injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. 40 Days for Life is an internationally coordinated 40-day campaign that aims to end abortion locally through prayer and fasting, community outreach, and a peaceful all-day vigil in front of abortion clinics. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter. I am the host of the show, and with me again is my good friend, Cameron Cote. How are you, sir? I am living the dream. We have interns in the midst of this COVID pandemic. They started their socially distanced and COVID-friendly activism on Monday. We're doing some door knocking. We're having to talk really loudly because we're standing a long ways away from the door and all that kind of stuff, but it is going really cool. <laughs> I was out with my friend uh, Rochelle um, yesterday doing some some mentorship and support with her, and, and we saw, I think, five people change their mind in the span of two hours, um, which is pretty darn exciting. Talked to a few other pro-life people already. Um, it was a good day. How are you doing, sir? I am doing pretty good. Not quite so good on the internship front. I mean, we have an internship. We're doing the training, but the restrictions here at Ontario, man, they are ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of training is happening right now. We've had some training talks. I've done a few planning for a few more. Uh, and some of our other colleagues have done some talks as well. But I look for the day when we can get when we can hit the streets and, uh, and do what you are doing over there in a, in a COVID safe uh, way, but also a way where we're able to highlight and share the truth about abortion with the people around us. Yeah, super funny anecdote. So at the time of recording right now, two offices over, we have all of our interns listening to our episode on The Violinist. Um, Alex was doing a, a short talk and he was telling me about it um, yesterday as as he was prepping for it. And I said, you know, we, we already covered this on the podcast. And so for you listeners who haven't checked out our episode on The Violinist, um, you can go to our website, ProLifeGuys.com. You can find it on all your favorite podcast catchers where you're probably listening to this podcast. Um, uh, we did it, I don't know, January, February sort of thing. Um, but it kind of funny listening to them, just walking by the office and hearing them listen to us um, and our recording on that one. And one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far, Peter. Um, and I'm glad that it's being used for the, the training of new pro-life ambassadors. Yes, that's episode 28. If anyone wants to check out The Violinist, The Violinist Argument is a pro-abortion argument that, that has been used. Um, many people have found it to stump them, uh, and they're just not really sure how to respond to that. But we take about 30 minutes. I think we took about 30 minutes um, just to highlight what the argument is, to share some of the problems with it, to share a few different ways that we can respond to it, and then to highlight the best way that we think we can respond to it on the streets when we're in conversation. So check it out, episode 28, Unstringing the Violinist Argument. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children here in Canada. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, Cam is on one side of the country and I am on the other and we started this podcast to give you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. We have had a ton of conversations. We've learned a lot. We've failed a lot. And then we've learned from what we failed, uh, how we failed. And we want to share the, the conversations and the ways that we have conversations on this podcast. Unstringing the Violinist is one of those examples. We have uh, several others like that as well. Here's what we'd say to that part one. Here's what we'd say to that part two. Uh, we have some about um, overpopulation and just some other arguments that we hear in the streets and we share how to respond to them. So check them out. One of the things we also do in the podcast is we want to introduce you to different initiatives around the globe, uh, different projects and different um, heroes of ours who are doing great work defending and protecting preborn children in their area. 
And so today we had the opportunity to have a guest on from 40 Days for Life. Robert Cahoon is the Director of International Campaigns for 40 Days for Life based in London, England. And uh, he, is in, he is not only involved in coordinating 40 Days for Life campaigns in the UK, but he also works with leaders to bring 40 Days for Life to countless other countries, including Australia, Croatia, New Zealand, Russia, and South Africa. We had a great conversation with him. He has a lot of stories. He has a lot of experience, which will certainly come out. And we hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as we did. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today on the podcast. Oh, it's a privilege. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about 40 Days for Life. So let's dive right in. I mean, while most of our listeners might be aware to some degree um, and be somewhat familiar with what 40 Days for Life is and some of the work that you do, um, whether through participating themselves or maybe even through watching the unplanned movie that uh, shared the story of the former abortion provider, Abby Johnson. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the organization, what you do, and perhaps share a little bit about your role as well uh, with 40 Days for Life? Absolutely. Well, 40 Days for Life is a locally organized community in initiative encouraging Christians to pray and fast for an end to abortion. And our campaign has gone all around the world. Um, we're about 15 years old as an organization. They started in Texas and there was a group of Christians who were frustrated and angry that Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the United States, had come to Bryan in Texas and they didn't know what to do. So they tried absolutely everything. And it was the foundation of David B. Wright and Sean Carney who founded the organization. They organized the first campaign in 1998 and launched an organization in 2004. And it was a very simple idea. Um, it was to turn to God in a spirit of prayer and sacrifice um, because they had exhausted all the human efforts of trying to end abortion in their community. So they decided to organize around the clock a prayer vigil outside the Planned Parenthood building for uh, at least 12 hours a day. I think the first one was 24 hours a day for a 40-day time period because in Scripture, 40 days, God has used um, spirit, immense spiritual changes throughout salvation history. Um whether it be you know Noah, um, Jesus in the desert for forty days, uh, Elijah fasting for forty days. Throughout the Scripture, we've seen God use forty-day time period to bring immense spiritual changes. So they decided to organize a prayer vigil for that whole forty days. A couple of people praying at any one time, round-the-clock prayer vigil, and in addition to that, encouraging Christians to pray and fast and to take a pro-life message, community outreach all across the whole community. They think they visited every single home in the town with a bit of pro-life uh, literature. And during that time, they saw the abortion rate decline by 28%. And not only that town was inspired, but people all around the country began to get interested in uh, what can we do, something similar to, to this effort. And so other cities started joining a, a similar campaign. So there's three parts of the campaign, prayer and fasting, peaceful vigil, and community outreach. And its simplicity, I think, is a real appeal. And some people think, you know, what, what does prayer, how does prayer make a difference in ending abortion? But we've seen a lot of babies saved outside abortion centers, often at the very last minute, um, last sign of hope for anyone having an abortion, but the first sign of mercy for anybody who's had an abortion. And so for some people, this is the first thing to go and stand and pray outside an abortion center it might be the first thing that they've ever done that's pro-life um, ever in their life. And they might have a conceptual idea of abortion. But if you go and stand outside and pray and see the reality of abortion where you live, that this isn't, isn't an abstract idea that happens in the, the parliament or courts. Uh, it's something that happens in the local community. What One guy turned up at the abortion centre and you know he saw a medical waste truck and that was his first hour going to pray there. Uh, it can wake people up to the reality of what's happening in their local community. So that's the essence of our campaign. And I've been the international director now for 10 years. Um, so I've been all around the world to about 30 different countries helping um, campaigns get started and um, started from nothing from scratch to organizing a local pro-life campaign so it's it's like having a, a front row seat seeing god's grace in action uh, meeting a lot of different leaders and connecting inspiring with people with the campaign so in, in essence we help christians end abortion where they live uh, that's that's what the organization is all about 
That's phenomenal, Robert. And and I've had the the wonderful opportunity to partner with I, I think three or four different Forty Days for Life groups. Now, um, as you mentioned, it was one of the the first pro life events that I ever participated in in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, it was a, a wonderful and faithful team there that um, witnesses outside of the abortion facility in Victoria. And and I'm curious. So I I, I love the the stories of how people kind of enter into the pro life movement. I our, our good friend on the program Scott Klusendorf, um often talks about how nobody really plans to join the pro life movement. It's more of a a summoning that that people experience. And and I'm curious before we dive a little bit further into the nuts and bolts of how more people can get involved in 40 Days for Life and that sort of thing. I, I'd love to hear kind of your journey. Um, you mentioned that, that you've been serving as the international coordinator um, for around 10 years now. Is this something that you always were kind of on a, on a uh, straight path towards, or is this something that really kind of blindsided you and you just realized that this was God calling you towards this ministry? Or, or what did your journey towards this look like? Um, so it was certainly not a straight line. It was jagged, uh, jagged journey of um, different ways. I, I became a Catholic at university. I studied history at King's College London and I graduated in 2004. Um, so the first time I really had any interaction with any pro-life arguments was at university. So Lord Alton, who's in the House of Lords, gave a pro-life talk at university. And he gave a pretty thorough, you know, 50 years of history in the UK why this was the most compelling social justice issue of our age. Um, he showed the graphic reality of abortion in that talk, and he gave a sort of 101 political speech from beginning to end of how he'd been involved for decades in the pro-life movement. So uh, that talk really kind of blew open this topic for me at university. I thought, wow, that's amazing. I've, I've never really thought about this at a deep level. It's never impacted my life before. And I was received into the, I was an Anglican. I received into the Catholic Church in 2004, uh, I thought I was going to work in the city of London, go and work for some bank or something when I was at university. So I did a summer of doing that. And then uh, I graduated and I spent a bit, a bit of time working for the World Youth Alliance in Brussels, came back to London, and I tried my vacation um, quite shortly after after that time. Um, I was at seminary for several years, for a, a year in Spain and two years in London. Um, but God had other plans for my life, and um, I discerned that the priesthood wasn't for me. And so 2008, I didn't carry on. I spent a year as a missionary in Canada with Net Ministries. And during my time in Canada, in Ottawa, in the capital, there's a Morgenthaler abortion centre in Ottawa. That was where I first saw Four Days for Life as a vigil. A lot of elderly people praying outside the Morgenthaler abortion centre, close to the Canadian Parliament. So that really struck me. Coming back to the UK, uh, I felt called to go and give talks in schools um, on chastity for for a year and after that year uh, we started the first ever 40 days campaign so I saw a video in the states I thought wow this is amazing it's a great campaign I felt God was calling me to start a campaign in the UK so we started a first vigil in 2010 outside Mary Stopes uh, one of the largest abortion centers in the UK so I, I thought it'd be a failure it's a very secular country in the UK doing a public prayer vigil is quite countercultural here and you're up against a lot of people who disagree with you. So uh, most people, it's going way outside their comfort zone to do that. But we saw a baby saved on the second day of our first campaign in the UK, and we've never looked back. We, we had six saves on our first campaign, and we, we, we kept going. We, we get a lot of challenges, a lot of persecution in the UK, as I'm sure a similar, similar style of um, political activity in, in Canada. But uh, it's been a great campaign, and we've now got over 15 vigils all around the UK. That's that's great, Robert. And it's always encouraging to hear yeah. about the babies that are saved through the work like this in front of the clinics. And uh, I, well, I always love the question of, you know, how did you start in the movement? Because for a lot of people, it's 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 very, very similar, right? Like it's not like we grew up and we're five years old thinking this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But in some way or another, God decides to put a, you know, a blockage in our path and, and change it around, change our, our life trajectory around so that we uh, begin to fight abortion in one way or another. Now, I can fully relate to the fact that prayer outside of an abortion clinic is a countercultural thing, especially coming from Canada, where there's no like religious majority um, by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Um, and so starting a, a 40 Days for Life vigil or anything along these lines seems like a daunting thing, as you mentioned, in the UK. But what would the I mean, you you took the initiative. You started one of these initiatives. Now there's uh, 15, you said, or more than 15. 
what is the sort of way that someone who's interested could launch a campaign like this? Um, what's required, what's necessary, um, and what sort of encouragement might you have for those who are doing it in a culture like the one that we are in, um, where you know religion is kind of seen as this fringe thing that you do in your own prayer closet and in, in your churches when you're allowed, um, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the broader culture and certainly has nothing to do with the topic of abortion. So we have a whole variety of leaders from retired um, servicemen to uh, students um, and across across the board. Many of our leaders uh, in the United States are post-abortive women as well. Some people have been personally affected by abortion and feel very passionately about the topic and connect and relate to um, pro-life activism in, in that capacity. But we have different leaders uh, from all walks of life. Uh, our leader in Southampton, he's a post-abortive dad. And he works in a military hospital. Uh, we did a podcast with him. He works in a military hospital, um, assisting with several abortions when he was helping with the military. He's got an incredible story, but he felt God was leading him to be a leader in his local community. Um, with a local leader in Birmingham, Isabel, she started the March for Life. And she was just somebody who felt passionate about abortion and saw this was working. And they did a, a just a Saturday prayer vigil where they lived and they decided to take it around the clock with Voices for Life. She's now seen her abortion centre close and the satellite ones close as well. And now the March for Life is a, is a major event in London too. We've got um, el elderly uh, elderly ladies who are, who are the leaders. It really is from people from all different works for life. But they've got to have one thing in common, and that's that they feel that God is calling them to uh, do something for the pro-life movement. And they've got to have uh, got to make the commitment and um, to know what they're signing up to and to, to respond to that. So we've had people who... You know, it's a big step of faith to actually step step up as step up as a, a leader. But I've I've been blown away with the the quality, the caliber of leaders, the sacrifice that they've had to to say, right, I'm going to give this everything for for six weeks, and to get a team of people around me to to make this a reality, to to organize a prayer vigil for twelve hours a day for forty days solid is is a difficult task. You know, especially in a, a secular country like like the UK, and we have leaders all around the world and so, sometimes uh, our, our leaders um sometimes our leaders uh our leader in germany has married the leader in colombia and they, they're now um, happily married in germany so and we have a conference once a year as well so um i'm, I'm just in awe of the the leaders we have but we leader in nottingham he also saw the abortion center close in the hospital he's a, a, almost on the verge of retirement he's a former headmaster um teachers uh, helps with the Ofsted examinations, going to schools and checking on them too. So we have people from all different places, but um, what, what unites them is a passion for the pro-life cause, knowing that with God, all things are possible, including the end of abortion. And there are tangible things that we can do in our local community. Okay, we might not be able to end abortion in one huge step, but we can take small, we can have small victories and God can work in every single conversation that we have. Uh, the way that God works through the campaign is we see we see babies that are saved. We reach out to mums who are the last step, just about to have an abortion. Uh, we offer hope to those who've had an abortion and any conversation with a passerby, with those thinking of abortion. We help lead people to post-abortion healing programs so we can be that first step, inviting somebody to go on one of those retreats. Um, and any way you can help spread a, a growing awareness of the humanity of the unborn child through community outreach uh, with unplanned it's it's you know never been easier with the pro-life resources the literature we have the the books we have and the films now um to communicate that pro-life message so yeah we're in a secular culture here um they don't like that message we're getting more intolerant as a, as a society here but there's still so many graceful ways in which you can spread a pro-life message uh, every day Absolutely, absolutely, and and we'll touch on more of those um, really, really wonderful stories that, that you've been blessed to experience, and I'm sure team members have been blessed to experience as well about the the joy that that people experience watching these abortion facilities get closed and babies get saved and whatnot. We'll dive into more of that in just a moment, but let's let's touch a little bit further on um, equipping people and and for those listening, maybe they do have a calling like this on their heart. Maybe there isn't a 40 Days for Life presence in their community. Um, I know that in Calgary, uh, Canada, where I'm at, um, there's not only kind of church coordinators that help coordinate members of their church to, to adopt a day or several days during the 40 Days for Life um, 
campaign, but there's also regional coordinators that, that work with all of the, um, the low church coordinators mm -hmm. and whatnot. For somebody who would be listening, who there isn't 40 Days for Life in their community, they're interested in bringing it, um, bringing that prayer for witness um, to their community and to the, the abortion facilities that are in their community, what kind of support, what can they anticipate and and look forward to support-wise from 40 Days for Life? What Are they going to be beating their, their entire own path through the bushes? Are they going to be reinventing the wheel? Or what kind of support are they, can they um, anticipate for establishing that in their home community to give them a little bit more of a, a confidence that they will be able to pull this off, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. And for any prospective leader, you know, ultimately is is God asking you to start a campaign? And, you know, is that a yes or a no on that on that question? And if the answer is yes, then fantastic. And we want them to be a local leader. Um, we've got lots of tools, technology training to help encourage them to make that task as easy as possible. And if somebody's being not being called to be a leader, then, you know, we can help discern that process and talk with them. We have applications in June and December. And, um, Basically, we have training videos, sort of eight, uh, 40 minute videos to just go through every single part of what it is to organize a campaign from the prayer vigil to the community outreach, um, to gathering a team of people together, um, to the online resources that we have of having the online prayer vigil, to helping promotional flyers, helping reach out to churches. And a key part of it is recruitment, how to recruit other people. So we had a teacher that came to our prayer vigil once and he uh, prayed for an hour at the vigil and he said, you know, God, how can I help to end abortion where, where I live? And he went back to his school and he took a pro-life message to all the 500, all the 500 pupils at his school. And that was just from one hour of prayer um, coming to the prayer vigil and, and coming back. For, for anyone, you know, this has got to be, not everybody wants to go out and organize a prayer vigil outside the abortion center. It's most people have quite a bit of resistance to, to doing that. They're going outside of their comfort zone. They might be afraid. They might have reservations. Uh, they think, where, where on earth do I start? But I think that the key part is if you can get a core team of people around you, you know, whether that be four to six people, and that's, that's how we started in London. We started with a core team. And I say to all the leaders, if you follow the training, we've had thousands of campaigns all around the world. We've seen over 17,000 babies saved. From abortion and if you follow the model it's going to you know you've got to put the hard work in and allow god to work and with prayer all things are possible with prayer we can move mountains um, we can see miracles and we've seen over a thousand babies in the uk who are scheduled for an abortion but the mothers chose life at the very very last minute so um i've i've witnessed it i've witnessed that several times at the at the prayer vigil to see women who's is seconds away from going for an abortion and then you know, had a change of heart, change of mind. We've had offer offer of um, leaflets outside the abortion centre. Pregnant worried will help. Uh, we've got a great crisis pregnancy centre in London called the Good Council Network. They've done a lot of this frontline ministry for for years. Um, a couple of the abortion centres in London are former um, prayer. One of them is a former convent, and the other one is a, uh, a former form of house of prayer so i mean there's extraordinary history there of, of how the building used to be a convenant nuns in the 1960s in twickenham in london and the building was bought by an abortion provider 1970s uh, and it's now a late-term abortion center so we've, we've had one prayer vigil outside that center there's now a buffer zone there preventing uh, organizing a prayer vigil but we had one leader there who did an incredible job uh, justina pasek she was a polish lady she was there full-time for five years and she saved several hundred lives from uh, from abortion, uh, offering leaflets at the last moment um, outside that abortion centre. So for anyone who's, who's worried, who's concerned of like, I'd like to do this, but I don't know how or what to do. Through through the leadership, we um, you know we train train up our local leaders, and we had over five hundred local campaigns. The last campaign, we've got twenty staff in total. Um, and the campaigns in the United States are really going very strong at the moment. You know, there's a very a, you know, awful government in the United States, um, but on the grassroots level, the pro-life pro-lifers have, have done an incredible job. And forty of our vigils now are year-round in the United States, as opposed to just forty days. So uh, we've got two vigils in the UK that are year-round rather than just just for forty days now. So you've got to start somewhere, and if you start doing small actions, and then those actions can grow over time. But it seems an insurmountable 
task to do around the clock prayer vigil but you know we break it down in the training and if you do that and follow it you build up contacts you've got to go to churches there's a hard sell in churches pastors aren't always on board so much and priests and pastors getting them on board getting the message out in the local church so if you do a really great job recruiting people then you know if two percent of people reply and say yes then you know you'll have enough people to to get around the around the clock prayer vigil so um but it's an exciting campaign it's a graceful you know and, and we're, we're on the, the the cusp between the culture of life and the culture culture of death so we've seen many grace-filled grace-filled stories you know just right outside the abortion center of people changing their minds and uh, and yeah it's been an exciting time yeah it sounds like an exciting time robert yeah. and i for one love to hear the stories uh, of some of the work that's been done uh, and I know a lot of our listeners do as well. So could we get into some of the specifics of these these mountains that have been moved uh, by the work that's been done? Could you share? Um, so, so for example, I think about, you know, the Abby Johnson story that I, I referenced earlier. Um, there's a 40 days for life presence outside of the clinic she was at. Um, she, you know, saw what abortion was and it was interacting with uh, with those workers there and ended up becoming pro-life, which was phenomenal. But one of the things you've referenced is this is is not just a one-off story. I mean, this happens time and again in the UK, in the States, in Canada, uh, in various different places. So could you share with us a little bit more about, I don't know, just like a specific life that was saved or a specific clinic that was closed and how it happened, uh, or even, you know, a, a worker or two that that um, stopped working within the industry because of the presence of 40 Yes, so um, absolutely. I'll come on to London in a second. Abby Johnson, I mean, uh, everybody knows her story. She's helped over 500 abortion workers leave through, and then there were none. Her ministry, she came to London in 2013, and we uh, we did a tour around the UK with her. And, you know, Unplanned Now has been shown all around the world. So it just shows you that the power of one person's conscience, you know, not only our headquarters is in the, the former Planned Parenthood building in Bryan, um, but her story has been heard all around the world through the Unplanned movie. Um, and in London, our, our abortion centre closed. We organised our first vigil in 2010. Um, it was the second day the couple were going into the abortion centre and they don't allow born children into the abortion centre. So uh, the, the, the boyfriend had to wait outside um, with two born children as her, his girlfriend went into the abortion centre. And he started talking with the volunteers for like 15 minutes. And uh, after that time, he rushed into Mary Stokes. Uh, he got his girlfriend and they left and uh, never to come back again. And from that moment, I just thought, you know, we're, we're on to a, <laughs> a winner here. If the, you know, It's day two and we've seen a baby saved already. Um, we also had a mum who had a dream and she thought that her baby was calling out to her in her dream. You know, mummy, mummy, please don't abort me. This was the night before she was scheduled to have the abortion. And uh, the pro-life counsellor that day helped her to discern that that was the dream. And this was uh, her baby was calling out to her in, in her dream. And she decided not to go ahead with the abortion. Uh, another person walked down the, the line of prayer volunteers, shaking their hands of each one. One of them um, saying, you yeah, know, thank you so much for being here. If it wasn't for people like you, you know, then my, um, you know, my, my girlfriend would not have chosen chosen life. So we saw six babies saved on our first ever campaign in the UK. And then we moved to the British Pregnancy Advisory Centre, uh, which is the British abortion provider, the largest abortion charity in the UK. And that was in a Victorian big square. And we organised a vigil there for three years. So we did seven campaigns, about 3,000 hours of prayer outside that abortion centre. And every campaign, we saw about six babies saved. And um, there were cyclists that came past. It was on a cyclist uh, lane. So some of them were like kamikaze cyclists. They didn't like our message. So... Uh, you got some positive messages and, you, and you've got people shouting at you, you know, telling you where to go, uh, telling you number one. But uh, our presence there was really powerful. And we uh, got the bishop to come to the prayer vigil in 2012. And the pro-abortion lobby kicked up a massive storm at that point because um, one of the pro-life leaders, John Smeaton, head of SBUC, said uh, the pro-abortion lobby know how powerful the, the bishops are and getting them involved and how important that is. And so we had a uh, we had a protest of about 500 abortion protesters turn up while the bishop came, which brought a lot of traction. We brought several hundred pro-lifers were there at the same time. So there's a huge standoff between the pro-aborts there and the pro-lifers who are just quietly praying there, and the pro-abortionists who are making sacrilegious jokes and uh, shouting and making a lot of noise. But the abortion centre closed um, the following the following year, and we had a prayer vigil inside the abortion building. 
the day after they, their lease was terminated, wrote to the Duke of Bedford. He gave us permission. He was the, the landowner um, who owned the building. And so we had a prayer service. We had a mass inside the building um, the day after the abortion centre closed. And so in the words of the Eucharist, uh, Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Uh, abortion advocates cling to their own bodies that uh, others may die, but but Jesus gives of his own body that others may live. So all the shouting, all the abuse we'd had for years, we'd had a lot of abuse and um, you know people throwing eggs at us and this this kind of thing for years. We knew that all that was was worth it because we saw that abortion centre close. And and since that time, we've seen Belfast, uh, Leamington Spa, Birmingham, Nottingham, and now now. Um, Brighton has closed. They're now doing at-home abortions in the UK. 50% of the abortions are at home through pills by post. So all the big abortion centres are vulnerable to close. So Brighton and Streatham have have just closed. But we, we need to have a new paradigm for the pro-life movement in the UK. You know, we're very much on the periphery of society. The abortion lobby has complete dominance in the media, in politics. And, you know, there's the pastoral, political, prophetic angles of the pro-life movement and, you know, we need to, to, to regroup and, and what, what we're doing as campaign is working, but, you know, we need a multifaceted approach across the whole of society with a lot of dynamic pro-life organisations who can just take things to the next level and, and, and challenge, you know, every every presupposition of the, the pro-abortion culture that permeates um, British society. So this, this was one victory. Um, I mentioned in Ealing, uh, they've had a very successful vigil there now. They've They've been banned there for the time being. It's a criminal act to pray outside the abortion centre. Um, one campaign there, they had 23 babies saved from abortion from one vigil back in 2013. So it was very, very successful. Um, one lady was being forced into the abortion centre from um, forced into the abortion centre from her family who were forcing her in. She jumped out the window and jumped over the hedges to escape them, and she chose life for for her unborn child. Another lady. Her, her blood tests were misdiagnosed. She was holding the abortion pill in her hand. And then the, the nurse said, oh, no, your blood results are wrong. And she she actually misread the blood results and thought they were somebody else's or something. At the last moment, she decided not to give, uh, not to go ahead with that abortion. There was a nun praying outside the building that day, said, we're praying for you. She gave her testimony with her two-year-old child at our kickoff event um, a, a couple of years later. So these really dramatic stories. And, you know, this is kind of, the front line of, of spiritual battle. We've had many priests come and pray at the vigil. Um, we've had a number of priests do exorcism prayers um, of their own sort of volition or of their own ministry um, every single day in different different places around the country. And we're an ecumenical campaign. You know, we're Christians of all walks of life: uh, Protestants, Catholics, Evangelicals, um, people from all. The, you know, the most dynamic campaigns are where the Christians are all working together for the same goal. This is this is an issue that unites Christians. It, it doesn't divide them, that we all believe in the sanctity of human life. And when we all get together and just say, right, okay, what can we actually do about this? And, you know, how can we work together to accomplish a similar goal? Our Brighton leaders evangelical, and we've, we've, we're 80% Catholic in the UK, but, um, but we've got leaders from all different walks of life. That's phenomenal. And and I I would love to just hear more and more of these amazing stories. I, I'm sure that you could go on all afternoon um, with more of these stories of, of minds changed and lives saved. As we start to pivot towards kind of the frequently asked questions that, that I'm sure that you guys get asked all the time, one kind of pivot that I, I'd be very curious in, not to completely deflate the balloon, but I, I know that from the experience of many people here in Canada, so we have these bubble zones around a lot of our abortion facilities in Canada to try to protect, um, I'm, I'm using air quotes for those listening to the audio, um, protect the mothers who are having abortions. And so for a lot of them, they um, people doing 40 Days for Life, they, they have no idea whether or not these mothers are having abortions or turning away um, because they, they don't have the opportunity to interact with, um, with the mothers, with the fathers that are going into these abortion facilities. And so for, for many people that I've spoken with, it, it's been a, a very, very um, diligent, very committed um, approach to 40 Days for Life, but they, they often don't necessarily see the fruits of their labor. They don't see the mothers. Uh, the mothers don't come over and give them big hugs and thank them for saving their babies. Um, what, what words of encouragement do you offer to people who have been very faithful in participating in 40 Days for Life or other such um, prayer and fasting campaigns, but may not at this point have seen the fruits of their labor, of their efforts and whatnot? How do you encourage them and, and how do you kind of help them 
persevere with this ministry, I suppose? That's right. Well, that's a great question. And not every single campaign does see tangible results um, because we're a prayer ministry. Um, we're encouraging Christians to pray. And, you, you, you know, you might organize a campaign. You might not see any tangible results um, at the end of at the end of that campaign. So I was always touched by a story of a campaign in the United States and they tried to get people involved. And it was just a, you know, a mother and daughter effort. And they found very few people willing to get involved. Um, but even they heard of a baby that was saved from their particular campaign. And I think we're, we're very much trading in, in hope here in the sense of uh, we need to empower people with hope, not only those who are abortion minded, um, but also pro-lifers who feel, you know, exasperated um, with the situation in our country that abortions allowed up to birth, um, that the pro-life message is not being heard in, in you know, across society. So it's it's really that perspective of, you know, the, the problem of abortion is that, you know, it's, it's at record levels across the country, pro-abortion legislation, every single political party's pro-abortion, the media is saturated with biased pro-abortion information, um, you know, and it's easy to hold up your hands and just say, you know, what can we do? This is a desperate situation and this is totally hopeless. And even in places where you can't pray within 200 metres of the abortion centre, we've got three of those buffer zones in the UK. We've got uh, one in Forsheim and in Frankfurt in Germany. There's the Detroit, the, most of Australia has buffer zones now as well as Canada and New Zealand. They're trying to bring them bring them in. So uh, with, with challenges like that, that you can't be necessarily close, it's another step of faith. Uh, you know, the first step of faith is believing that prayer through prayer, we can really change things. But then also to believe that organizing a prayer vigil 200 meters away, that's another step of faith. So we, for three years, we've had a prayer vigil in Ealing, 200 meters from the abortion center. And the, the, the save rate has gone down 90%. Uh, but we've still seen women who have changed their minds. And there have been taxi drivers who've dropped off the girls at the edge of the buffer zone. Um, we've heard grace-filled stories that have still happened there. So uh, that's a hard thing, hope against hope. And there is a high turnover of, of, of people of, who, who get involved and then realise that the, the spiritual struggle that's involved in this debate and, and how difficult it is to see a change. You know, the human heart's a battlefield, you know, a, a battlefield in this in this topic. And we hear many tragic stories. We had a, a story of twins and the, um, the mum changed their mind in Portugal and Lisbon. Um, a year ago but she rechanged her mind she went ahead with the abortion there was another mum with twins who chose life and so not every story um is easy and i i i have seen many of the the blessings and have seen many of the positive stories and i think we have to trust god you know trust god beyond beyond measure beyond imagination and when we trust in him that this is this is his fight it's not necessarily ours and when we look at this uh look at the abortion debate from a purely human perspective um it seems an impossible task to end abortion and an insurmountable task but with god all things are possible so i always trust in his providence and and think you know how can we how can we act um doing god's will in in, in our actions and you know our trip to croatia we started with one vigil and now they're praying outside every single hospital uh, 35 hospitals that do abortions um in in uh, croatia so this was just one campaign and that now they've taken it to, to every place. So, you know, it, I, I think it's Pelagianism, you know, it's uh, Pelagius was a British monk and it's like, you know, you, you've got to sort of attain salvation through human means. It's, you know, from that perspective, yeah, it's pretty hopeless, but, but if we trust in God, we put him center and foremost that he acts in and through us, that, that he has a better plan. And even the mums who go for the abortions, it might be the second abortion you'd be praying there and if they saw you that they might remember that they might not go ahead with the the second abortion but what was for sure that this is where abortions happen this is you know from a pro-life perspective uh this is a great place to to campaign to pray it's where abortions happen in the local community and the kickback we get is a sign that yeah this is working so if you do have a buffer zone it's like you're in the right place what you're doing is working and you know it's it's uh the the um, you know, the devil does not want you to be there. And it's, this is a spiritual battle. And you'll very tangibly see that. I could give many examples of the, the spiritual battle that you can really clearly see outside abortion centers. Yeah, that's that's absolutely key. And you've referenced it several times that this, you know, is a spiritual battle, but it's also like the, you know, a, the place of death where we go and, and where we seek to rescue those who are being drawn to the slaughter here. And uh, 
it's a, it's a good reminder for all of us, whether we're in front of the clinics or on the streets, um, at universities, wherever it might be, to to remember that God is sovereign. That this is you know this is His fight um, that we participate in, and uh, and He's the one that saves the children using us. Um, so really, really helpful to remember. Let's dive into uh, the frequently asked questions now. When I think of a frequently asked question about ministry in front of abortion clinics, I often think about the narrative that the pro-abortion media and other abortion activists like to promote, and that is that anyone who stands in front of an abortion clinic is you know they're pre they're, they're you know preaching in a nasty way, they're shouting, they're yelling, they're calling down condemnation. Um, there's these fire and brimstone messages, and there's nothing but judgment happening in front of these clinics, and. Sadly, there are a lot of pro-lifers who have never been involved in anti-abortion work or pro-life work um, or been in front of the clinics themselves. And this is the only narrative they hear and, and some of them believe it. And so from your experience being in front of the clinics, from your experience uh, working with people around the UK, you know, could you, could you touch on the, the frequently asked question of, isn't the work you're doing just, um, you know, Calling, calling women names and judging them for their actions as they seek to do what they want um, by getting an abortion? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, that is the media um, summary of uh, how we're portrayed in the UK, that we are harassing women and uh, we've, you know, got the signs, the enders nigh and, you know, <laughs> Helen Brimstone is, is about to happen. And uh, we are sort of the ultimate bigots in society. And, uh, you know, we get challenged from a lot of different angles in the UK. We get challenged from the local government, the local councils, the national government, uh, challenged us through the Home Office. We've been challenged through the police. We've been challenged through public opinion, through media, through abortion supporters, and also the abortion industry, multi-million pound abortion industry in the UK. So we're getting attacked from seven different angles. Uh, and and the, the always the accusation is harassment, that we're harassing women. Uh, I've been involved for 10 years. I haven't known of a single story um, where a woman has you know, substantially been harassed by a, a, a pro-lifer and whether that's sort of verbal or physical harassment. Yet at the same time, this, this media narrative is, is very slick and professional in how it's spun out against us. In the, the last autumn campaign, we had 30 articles in the media um, basically haranguing, you know, bringing out this narrative, 30 articles in the secular media spinning off the, the, the same narrative. But, you know, it's really built on straw um, when you really look at this topic. There's a group called Sister Supporter, a pro-abortion campaign group um, in the UK who, who've really, you know, th this is their plug to end harassment. Um, the way they started was they started harassing pro-lifers. So they were the first campaign group in living memory to actually engage in the activity that they were supposed to be opposing. But uh, what's really funny when uh, we have like old grannies who are there praying and we're accused of harassing women and it's like the narrative kind of breaks down at that point. We, we were on the uh, BBC radio, uh, on the national radio, and we had a load of journalists come after that interview um, going back many years ago and, a lot of them were really disappointed because they were hoping to see the kind of Westboro Baptist Church style protest, and and when they got there, it's like, oh, how frustrating! It's not, it's it's not what we thought we we were. So you know, just a few people praying peacefully and quietly, peacefully, prayerfully, legally is how, how we do it. Um, it. It's not a story. It's not a story for the media. It's you know, it's always sort of something sensational for the media, and we don't really fit their narratives. So. Um, we simply pray and offer help. Um, we have uh, pavement counsellors or sidewalk counsellors there. Um, there are great training from Monsignor O'Reilly or sidewalk advocates for life. It's very simple. You offer a leaflet, say, can I help you? And if they say no, they walk past. And, you know, nine out of ten women will walk past and, and not take that offer of help. For, that, for the one woman that does take uh, that offer of help, you know, what's at stake is not only the life of that unborn child, um, you know, potentially a lifetime of regrets of having an abortion, you know, at that moment is, is a possibility to, um, you know, not only save the life of that baby, but for generations to come, you know, to have an impact on that family, uh, maybe affect the relationship between uh, mother and father, um, but impact that family for generations to come. And I met uh, a French lady who, who chose life outside the abortion centre. She'd given her birth. Uh, she was, you know, in difficult circumstances, unemployed, came over from France. Boyfriend had basically abandoned her, wanted to go for the abortion. She took the leaflet. For this second appointment going for Mary Stokes and 
you know, she's seconds away from having an abortion and she took that offer of help. She went to the crisis pregnancy center and she chose life for, for her baby. And, you know, that's a hard decision and lonely, but she's been supported by the council when, when I met her. But, you know, um, just uh, amazing to hear these stories. We have a Christmas party in London with all the mums that have chosen life. And there's like 20, 30 mums. It's just a, a beautiful moment. And uh, many of them from, from other countries, from uh, not just the United Kingdom, um, that this is the time where we are actually helping women, we're supporting them, the, the evidence is there. Uh, and if we were harassing people, we'd be shut down by the police before we know it. So um, one vigil we had the police called a hundred times in London. So it was a little bit like, um, it was a little bit like a, a, a crying wolf, an Aesop fable where you cry wolf and you just keep crying wolf and by the end of it, like this is getting silly. So the police are obliged to turn up every time somebody calls them. But by the end of that process, I think they were fairly fairly fed up so some of our volunteers are the most meek humble people that you'd ever meet and the idea that they're harassing people is is borderline laughable but quite hard to get that narrative out of the uh, secular media when it's bombarded upon you and you, you wouldn't believe the lies and the misinformation become truth and reality for many people and uh, to, to break through that is is a challenge so uh, we're, we're still working on it we've got a website be here for me which helps uh show the women that have been helped and uh, it's the voice of the mothers um who are saying we don't want buffer zones we were helped we chose life for our babies and we don't want to see buffer zones so we're, we're trying to get their voice out in the public too absolutely absolutely and i i think that that's such a fascinating point as well on the um crying wolf i here in canada as i mentioned there's this push to expand bubble zones and all that sort of thing and and with every abortion facility having surveillance, I mean, better better surveillance than I'm sure most banks and, and parliament and whatnot, um, still they've never been able to provide an example of harassment or, or any kind of negative conduct by um, the 40 Days for Life people, uh, which, which I think only speaks um, highly of the incredible code of conduct that they're all held to and whatnot. And so... I know that you've touched on it a couple of times about the pamphlets and leaflets that can be circulated. I'm sure at times the conversation with mothers who are going into the facility is a matter of, well, I don't want abortion, but it's my only option. Whether it's because of family circumstances, I'm going to get kicked out of my house, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to X, Y, Z. Abortion is my only option. I know that every interaction I'm sure is very different, but what kind of thought or suggestion would you, would you give to um, people who are joining for 40 Days for Life campaigns around the world, what is kind of the, the natural or go-to response to help them understand that abortion isn't actually their only option, that there is support available, though the road may be long and, and challenging, there is support available for those mothers. Where would you go with that, I suppose? Absolutely. Well, for anyone who is thinking of an abortion, many women feel like they have no choice and to know that you know, any tangible need that you have, whether it's financial, whether it's housing, whether it's counselling, whether it's you know emotional support, whether it's um, having a shoulder to cry on, whether it's talking to somebody else, um, any specific need that they have, you know, if they know that there is you know alternative help uh, available, many many of the women don't even know that there is alternative help available literally at the abortion center it is you know have an abortion or nothing at all you know uh, and that's really it and you know it's not that the abortion providers are, are offering tangible help for women who, who want to choose life for their unborn child so it's really a parody of choice it number one the women feel like they have no choice who are going for the abortions and number two the choice offered by the abortion center is you know abortion or nothing so it's like you know, you're, you're, you're on a conveyor belt and you're being sold one option. So uh, the idea that that is a choice, whereas the pro-life position, you know, if you're going to go for the abortion, we're not going to, you know, that's your, that's your, that's your decision. Um, and we are here to offer love, offer help, offer support. But the number of people that don't even know that there is alternative help available, uh, in addition, the, the government's funding the abortion providers up to £30 million you know, a year to start to be passed, one of the largest abortion providers. Um, so they're getting a huge amount of funding, but, you know, where's the funding for pro-life um, groups that are specifically helping? And, you know, it's the Mother Teresa nuns and other pro-life groups that are offering that help for anyone who's, who's in a crisis pregnancy and to, to get that message across, you know, that's a, 
that is a life-changing, life-saving message. And, you know, many people are having abortions for socioeconomic reasons, you know, whereas the law in this country, it's it's really for extreme circumstances. But now we've got the pill at home. So it's making life a lot harder to connect with those who are abortion-minded. So, um, yeah, how can we communicate a product message a, a lot clearer? Talking, listening to those, thinking this is a you know last moment. Uh, it, and I've heard so many grace-filled stories. I've heard pavement counsellors who, who are really, really good at reaching out to somebody at the last second, offering them a leaflet and saying, you know, we're here for you. If there's anything we can do for you, that's a really difficult thing to do because you know you've not only got to communicate. Uh, number one, there's help available. Number two, um, the humanity of the unborn child. Um, and, you know, number three about, you know, what is the reality of the abortion centre and what, what happens there. And you've got to communicate those three things in, like, the 20, 10 seconds that you've got. Um, they might stop for a longer conversation, but if you can communicate those things really clearly and succinctly, then – and to know that there is other help, help available. So, um, yeah, and, you know – Many men um, are, can be pushing their girlfriends towards going for the abortion, um, but know that there are things that the men can do to also help. Many women feel that the, the man will say, you know, you do what you feel best, which is a kind of euphemism for go go, go for the abortion. Women don't feel supported by that. Or they say, you know, whatever you feel is best, you know, you should, should do that, which is kind of like go for the abortion. Many women will have an abortion because they didn't feel supported by by the men as well so some of them are smoking outside the abortion centers and just a graceful conversation you never know what what can happen in, in that time so um yeah i've got hundreds of stories of of different uh, leaders from other countries and um yeah we're doing very well in latin america at the moment um really flourishing and uh, the campaign's bigger than it ever has been before and we've still got a lot more to a lot more to grow so um we've seen south korea going to sign up for the autumn um, we've got Berlin, um, Stuttgart in Germany and Austria as well joining for the first time. So there's always new places to start. And, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of work to do for the pro-life movement in the UK. But you look at how the Berlin Wall fell in the end of communism and, you know, communism just seemed kind of completely uh, insurmountable, uh, just all-powerful, the entire state. And, you know, at the end of the day, like... You know, the way in which it collapsed was fairly spectacular of, you know, first of all, the Berlin Wall coming down and then Gorbachev and all the Eastern European countries. So you, you don't know how abortion could, could end quite quickly if, if all the thing you know, all the dominoes in the right place and just the lies and the misinformation just come crashing down. When they do come crashing down, then um, we seem a very, very long way off that in the UK. And to think that we could end abortion here just seems, a, you know, a thousand miles from where we are. But... <laughs> But, you know, again, it's hope and it's how can we do small things and then those things accumulate over time into something more spectacular. But God has a bigger plan and that's uh, that's what we're part of. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's, I mean, obviously we're in a very similar situation here in Canada. I mean, our, our parliament just debated the bill as to whether or not we should ban abortion when abortion's only being provided to kill a baby girl, sex-selective abortions, and we couldn't even get traction on that. It feels so daunting to have this <laughs> massive journey ahead of us, but... Um, uh, a shout out to my colleague Alex, who's a huge fan of these motivational posters. The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, sort of thing that that we have to do. The 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 yeah. step that's in front of us. We we can't get overwhelmed or or be despondent because of the overwhelming journey. Um, we we have to take that first step. And so the the last question from me before um, any anything left from you, Peter. Um, maybe share a little bit about the timing of 40 days for life. I know generally in Canada, um, so you had mentioned that there's, there are a few year round campaigns, but generally the ones that I'm familiar with are, are often aligned with Lent, um, February, March kind of time in Canada, as well as September. And obviously February, March isn't a wonderful time in, in Canada to be doing sidewalk counseling and prayer and whatnot. But uh, so not only the Lent factor, but also I think about how this is around eight to 12 weeks after the, the Christmas, New Year's festivities, when I'm sure there are spikes in abortions being performed because of um, kind of uh, sexual ex escapades that people are on during that that holiday time and, and as well for the summer. Share maybe a little bit about um, the, the timing of the 40 Days for Life campaigns and what goes into why it's worth being on a freezing cold sidewalk in February to pray for an end to abortion, I guess. 
Yes, yeah, so we have two campaigns a year. One's during Lent, uh, which varies every year, the timing. And then the second one is in the autumn, starting on the last uh, Wednesday of September until early November. So we found that doing two campaigns a year works. Uh, many communities can't do a year-round witness. So just starting with uh, something that has a start, a middle and an end date is a great way to build up traction to build up momentum over time and some campaigns can do two some cities can do two vigils a year some just do one it's better to do one really well than to fudge it with two mediocre mediocre campaigns and it takes really two to three months to really put plan and prepare and put everything in place to do it really really well and you know we find that the the leaders who follow follow the instructions to the t they're the ones who see the majority of grace filled results our most popular picture is of a individual man in Alaska praying and he's got like an icicle coming off his beard and um, it's a kind of sign of courage and I'm sure in Canada I know how freezing cold it is with you know 20 centimeters of snow and the uh, Mr. Plowy has to come out and get rid of all the snow um, it's quite a fairly big deal to be praying outside in February March you need to take a, a radiator with you to be able to do that so um, other places around the world, you know, we've got vigils in Colombia there on the equator, so it's not a big deal um, at different parts, parts of the year. But it makes it harder, but it's also a sign of courage, a sign of um, witness if you're there in the freezing cold and um, you're, you're, you're still there. We had one vigil in the UK and it was like, you know, almost snowing every single day, really, really cold, freezing weather every day, and that, that was not easy at all. So. Um, weather is obviously quite a big component for our campaigners. We're outside. Um, we're outside. We're vulnerable to whatever the the, the weather may be. So um, we had one volunteer who was raining, and he decided to pray in his car. But he felt called cool to stand in public, and a friend joined him at joined him at that time. But uh, you know, we we are called cool to be outside, and you know, endure the weather wherever wherever it is. And I think it, it is good having two campaigns a year. Um, and it works in in the works in the in the in the cycle of of building. You know, you can't start with just doing something all out straight away. You've got to start with a specific goal in place. And you know, our catchphrase is the beginning of the end of abortion. And you know, if it's just one grace-filled conversation, one act of love, you know, with the intention of helping women and unborn children, you know, can just open up a huge can of worms of of you know, just a very very exciting. Eventually, everyone has to start somewhere, and ninety percent of people who do participate say they experience spiritual growth as a, as being part of it. So, even if you don't see a tangible benefit of, of praying there, and the, many people don't see any sign at all, um, but you may experience personal spiritual growth personally. That God may want to work on your heart first, and um, before we can reach out to to other people and offer help and help and hope. And and I think of every single passerby. You know, we have several thousand passersby in London. At the vigil every day, um, just every single passerby is an opportunity for a grace-filled, grace-filled conversation of, you know, changing that person's mind or at least getting them to think about the topic. And uh, doesn't matter where they are on the journey, what's happened in their past. It doesn't matter what's happened in someone's past. It's where you go from from this point onwards. And so we've had former abortion workers change heart, change mind. Sue Thayer used to run the Planned Parenthood. In Storm Lake, Iowa, she now works full-time for Horses for Life along with Hayward Robinson. So we've got two former abortionists on our staff um, who are very well-versed in you know, how the opposition, how abortion workers think and practice and their you know, intellectual sort of logic of, of how, how they operate and how Planned Parenthood operates. So, um, but yeah, I believe we will see big changes one day. We have to be very, very patient. And if we're doing God's will, that's when... That's when we're doing what we're called to do. And both Canada and the United Kingdom, it feels like, you know, we are in a very, very extreme abortion countries and some of the most extreme abortion countries in the world that we're not only murdering our own babies, that we're going to other countries. Uh, we are paying for and exporting abortion to other countries around the world, even where abortion is illegal using taxpayers' money from both our countries. So that's how extreme we're not happy with aborting our own babies. We want to abort other babies in other countries illegally uh, against the laws of other countries so that's how extreme the the situation is um but god will show a bigger victory and we're faithful to him um he's in control he has a bigger plan and even when a, a baby is aborted he has a bigger plan and can bring good out of evil too amen yeah that's a that's a great way to put it and i think it's a great place 
to end as well. Uh, I can just tell from from the way you speak, you have a hundred conversations, a, a thousand uh, stories, um, just because of the the consistency and the amount of time you spent doing this sort of work. So I thank you so much for that. If there are people listening who want to learn more about 40 Days for Life, want to get in contact with you to perhaps uh, start a 40 Days for Life um, vigil uh, and, and grow a team in their own local area, how can they get in contact with uh, either you or, or even just 40 Days for Life as a whole? Yeah, so uh, we've got a website, 40daysforlife.com. That's the first point of call. We've done over 200 podcasts um, as well, so you can listen to all of them for free we've got a webcast we've got a youtube channel and uh, we've got a magazine in the united states we've got a shop uh, watch unplanned uh, must watch unplanned and encourage other people it's an opportunity for evangelization um to see unplanned not only does it graphically show an abortion it tells the story of a, an abortion where we left and a whole story of 40 days for life so unplanned is a great place to start and then you know look up your local vigil go go to your local abortion center and also pray you know pray you know, God, what can I do to end abortion where I live? And, you know, that if you pray that prayer, like, Lord, what can I do? Here, here I am, send me um, kind of thing. Or do you, are you calling me for this area? Maybe you're called to be a volunteer, to be a leader, to be, um, I don't know, assistant, get, be a team member. Um, there are so many different ways of, of being involved. Or you might want to invite other people to, to be involved. But our website's the first port of call. And there's so much that you can learn about the pro-life movement there. It's, it's you know, it's the whole lifetime you could dedicate to just you know the experience that we've had in the last 15 years and the sky's the limit you know we want to have campaigns all around the world and to have every country involved and just keep keep growing keep growing uh, as an organization so um pray and discern what you're called to do and god will answer your god will answer your prayers and he will answer our prayers to end abortion too thank you yeah that's that's absolutely great robert thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today on the podcast oh it's been a privilege thanks so much indeed that was Robert Cahoon from 40 Days for Life. That was a great conversation. I absolutely loved it. If you want to learn more, get involved, uh, or even just reach out, 40daysforlife.com is the website. You can find it in our show notes as well. Cam, as we wrap this up, I'd like to, to hear your final thoughts and perhaps if there's anything else you'd like to share, now is the time. Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough of 40 Days for Life. I've been involved, as I mentioned in the episode, a few different um, groups across Canada, wonderful, wonderful people. And as Robert mentioned, this is really an entry point. This this can be where you cut your teeth on the pro-life movement and have that prayerful kind of 11th hour um, witness outside of abortion facilities and um, and offer your prayer and fasting for the sake of the lives of children whose lives may be very um very much in danger of being ended. And so um, 40 Days for Life, they're, they're active in a lot of communities. Check them out. And if you want to check out how you can help us as Pro-Life Podcast, um, reach more and more people, whether it's advertising, whether it's um, other ways to get more people listening to the content that Peter, you and I are covering every week, um, please consider becoming one of our Patreon supporters. We have some exciting new stuff coming down the tube for Patreon uh, we're, we're hoping to do an unveil in a couple of weeks here, but um, there's no time like the present to join our Patreon team. You can find us at patreon.com slash prolifeguys. And, and by financially partnering with us, your money will go towards bringing the pro-life uh, worldview and tools about how to share that pro-life worldview to people across the country and around the world. And that's how we're going to change more minds. That's how we're going to save more lives. And that's how we're going to end up transforming our culture with the Lord's blessing having more people capable of having compelling and compassionate conversations. So please check out our Patreon and please as well have the conversations yourself. We, we um, love doing this, Peter, you and I. I'm sure we'd be sorely tempted to do this even if we didn't have listeners. Um, but especially with our listeners, our goal is to get you out there to help you have the confidence to use the tools that we talk about Um on the street, on door doorsteps, or wherever you might be doing your pro-life outreach, please go out, have the conversations, because not only are you probably in a different location than Peter or I are, but also you're probably going to have a voice that will resonate even more um, profoundly with your friends and family members rather than having a random stranger like Peter or I be the ones who talks to your friends and family on a street corner or on a doorstep. And so please do have the conversations and check in our Patreon as well. Beauty. Thank you, sir. 
if you are watching this on YouTube and you want to listen on your commute, you can also subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite content, or vice versa. If you're listening on your commute and you like to watch on YouTube, go check out our YouTube channel. You can find us. We are the Pro-Life Guys Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. We have more than just full episodes on YouTube, so go check it out. Go subscribe so you can be informed every single time we drop a new video. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today on the Pro-Life Guys podcast. This was a fantastic conversation, as I mentioned, with Robert from 40 Days for Life. And uh, and we hope this inspires you. His testimony, Cam's message here at the end, to get involved, to have those conversations, to share the truth about abortion with the people around you. You have a sphere of influence that we don't have access to. And the more people that speak out about abortion, the more people change their minds on the topic, the more lives will be saved and the faster we will be able to bring an end to this just this, this awful and horrific injustice. So go get involved, have those conversations, listen to the episodes that we have done where we highlight on, uh, on some of the arguments that we've heard and, and share how we would respond to them and, uh, and let us know how that works. Thank you again for tuning in. God bless you all. And we hope you tune in again next week.